I uh, appreciate the folks who are involved in all that it takes to pull a service off and they have to stay here for both the first service and the second service and some have to hear this sermon a second time <laughs> and uh, endure that. Um, I'm reminded of the little boy who went to such a church with his mother, she was involved in uh, the music and such and so he had to sit through the first service and the preacher was long-winded, and it seemed like he preached for 40 days and 40 nights, and it was never going to end, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and finally it was over, and then they had to endure the second service. And again, the same, same sermon, he was just like dying for it to be ended, and, and finally it was done. And so they were driving home, and uh, he said to his mother, he said, um, his mom said, I just have one question. He said, you know, there's those flags up there on the, on the platform. He said, there's an American flag, and and uh, the Christian flag. And then there was another flag. It looked like a military or something. He said, what, what was that flag for? And she said, well, son, that's, that's for all of the, the men and women who've died in service. And he said, they died in the first service or the second service? <laughs> so some, some of you may feel that way here this morning. <laughs> we want to turn our attention this morning to Hebrews chapter 12. So if you have Bibles, take them please and turn there. Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to be looking at just the four verses, first four verses. Let us read that and we'll ask for the Lord's grace. Verse 1 begins, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that is set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. For you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin." Now, Father, we thank you for this time together and for those who have come. We believe, Father, that you uh, guide our lives and you have delivered to this place this morning, to your church, uh, all of us who are gathered here. We pray, Father, that uh, it would be a profitable time, that your word would go forth and not return void as you have promised, and it would find, uh, Father, a welcome reception in each of our hearts. And we would grasp it, understand it, and leave here, Father, not just hearers of the word, but doers also. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen and amen. In 1974, <clears throat> Roger Reynolds was 24 years old, and he was a part of the elite U.S. Army Golden Knights skydiving team. And uh, they were performing in Charlotte, North Carolina, when they jumped out of a plane at about 5,000 feet. And with smoke streams trailing from their hands and their feet, they all pulled their rip cords at the same time. Only problem was, his didn't open. He pulled his emergency chute. It also failed. And as he fell to earth, after about 1,000 feet, he reached terminal velocity, about 122 miles per hour, and he hit the ground with a sickening thud that could be heard by the spectators in the stands about 150 yards away. Bystanders rushed to his aid, and they were shocked to find him still breathing. 
Later, when he was examined, it showed that virtually every bone in his body was either broken, shattered, or fractured. And so he spent the next several months in a full body cast in an induced, medically induced coma. And when he finally came to, they gathered at his bed and they told him, you will never get out of this bed. But he did. Then they told him, you'll never walk again. But he did. Then they told him, you'll never be able to run. <laughs> but he did. And three and a half years later, on March of 1978, Roger Reynolds finished in second place in the grueling 22-mile Boston Marathon. Reporters surrounded him and began to pepper him with questions as to how in the world he was able to do this. How could he recover and run this grueling race? And he answered simply and softly, I had hope. I had hope. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11 defines faith in this way. And he tells us that we have hope also, but we also have faith. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for conviction of things not seen. And today I want you to see that those two are to be wed together and they become the force in your life that helps you move forward in your walk with God and in the race that he's called us to win that we just read about in chapter 12. In this opening chapter, opening verses rather of chapter 12, he is going to give us an analogy in which he reminds us that Christianity is indeed a runner's faith. We believers are called to a race, and all the saints of God are to compete in that. No one gets a pass. It doesn't matter whether you're overweight, whether you're out of shape or slow, or you have weak legs or whatever, because every Christian must run. And you have to run that race for your entire life. There are no excuses, no exceptions, and above all, there aren't any spectators. The only ones who are exempt from this race are those Christians who have finished the course and have sat down amongst that great company of witnesses in heaven. Now, before we jump into the text, let me just give you a few details about this race that we're about uh, to engage in. First of all, you need to know this is not an individual race where you're running by yourself. It is indeed a relay race, a relay You see, there have been placed in the hands of each generation of Christians a baton. And that baton is the faith of our fathers and our mothers of the preceding generations. Adam was the first runner, and his hands that baton on to Abel. And Abel runs the great race until in the middle of that race he is cut down and killed by his brother Cain. And so Seth picks up that baton, and he runs. The baton is passed from generation to generation, And we see a long, unbroken line of runners race down through the pages of the Old Testament. There are superstars like Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses. But the vast majority are relatively unknown. There are speedsters, but most of the part, they're all what I would call just plotters. Just plodding along. Some get an easy downhill leg of the run. Others face a lifetime of sheer agony as they are forced to run a rugged portion of that course. Sometimes the baton is dropped and it must be picked up. Most of the runners will stumble and they will fall. Some will even become so exhausted, so weary, they will give up and they will drop out. But they run. They run down 
the quarters of time. They run through the pages of history. They run past Calvary's cross and the empty tomb. And again, there are the superstars like the Apostle Paul and Augustine and Polycarp, men like Martin Luther and Calvin and Spurgeon and John Bunyan and David Brainerd and Jonathan Edwards and many others. But again, most of the runners are just millions upon millions of nameless, faceless plotters who are known only to God. Now folks, our generation has come to that moment for which we have waited thousands of years. For the baton of faith has been firmly placed in our hand. Our children, even now, are being trained to take that from us and run the next leg of this great race of faith. We've had placed in our hands a precious, precious heritage. One that has been faithfully passed on by our forefathers and our foremothers from generations past. One that must be passed on to the next generation as well. And folks, I have just given you the message of Hebrews chapter 11 and chapter 12 as well. And the question that should haunt us and that we need to answer uh, for each of us today uh, is, <clears throat> I think it will be up on the screen here in a moment, key thought, how can we run steady, finish strong, and pass the baton well? How can we do that? We must all answer that question. And the writer of Hebrews today is going to coach us a little bit toward that goal. Now remember, he's writing to a church there in Palestine of Jewish believers who've come to faith in Christ. They've understood him to be the long-awaited Messiah that they've hoped for and looked for, and so they put their faith in him. But that has caused them to lose a great deal. It's cost them, cost them dearly. Many of them have lost their families. They've been disowned. Many of them have lost their jobs, their homes, their income, and they're suffering. They're struggling. They're outcast, they're ostracized, and so these Jewish believers, many of them under persecution that they're facing, are about to lose heart, and they're about to drop out of the race. Remember, these people have not been given an easy leg of this course to run. If they've been running through a valley that you might call the valley of despair and death. And frankly, they just want to throw in the towel. So the writer of Hebrews gives us in these brief four verses... Four verses of chapter 12, the secret to running this race, the secret to finishing this race, and the secret to passing the baton well on to the next succeeding generation. But not only does he write to these first century believers there in Palestine, he also writes to us today here at Bayview. And I wonder this morning, as we're gathered here, if there's any of us today who want to throw in the towel, we're challenged by this verse here to run with endurance the race that is set before us and we're struggling to do that. I wonder if we want to quit. Are you tired? Are you weary? Are you broken? Maybe your leg of the course seems to take you through the heat of the desert and it's all uphill. You're hanging on to your marriage by the skin of your teeth. Your medical prognosis that you've received Keeps you in bed at night staring at the ceiling to the wee hours of the morning. You're living paycheck to paycheck. And you reach the end of the month or the end of your money before you reach the end of the month. You'd like to drop your kids off somewhere and leave them for about a hundred years because you're just bone tired and weary. 
You want to drop out of marriage, drop out of your job, drop out of church, drop out of your commitments and responsibilities, drop out of life. If you're here this morning and you've ever even had an inkling of such thoughts, then the God of heaven has a prescription for you today that will help you to finish the course and run the race. The Rabbi Hebrews gives us several insights from the world of long-distance running. I don't know whether he was a runner or not. He seems to know a whole lot about it, but he certainly <clears throat> can give us some good counsel here. And we're going to look at the analogy of running today because that's the analogy that the text uses. And I want you to consider with me four insights that will help us to finish the course and run well. Notice, first of all, <clears throat> the course has been set for us. Notice verse 1 once again. Look at it, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now I want you to notice here the main verb, that opening verse, is this. Let us run. Let us run. That's what he wants to talk about, running. And we might ask, run where? Run how? Run what? Well, look at the next statement. With endurance, the race, and then these words, that is, notice, set before us. NIV, I think, says, marked out for us. Now, I see two important things here that I want to point out. First of all, we don't determine the course that God has given us to run. We don't determine the course of our lives. It is a sovereign God who does that. And he has laid out for us what he indeed wants to see come to pass in our life. The writer of Hebrews tells us that we're to run the race that has been set before us, and it's set before us by Almighty God. There's not even the slightest suggestion in this passage or anywhere else in the Bible, folks, that we ourselves can determine the course that we're going to run in this race. I used to run when I was younger. That's a lot of years ago. No comments, please. But, um, you know, I, I would run. My two oldest boys, Kevin and Matt, would run with me. And uh, when we started out, they could ride their bikes behind me, and we made it back to the house. They couldn't pass me until we reached a certain point, and I knew I could beat them to the house, and that was always our, our deal. And they couldn't get their bikes going fast enough, and so I, I had it all figured out where it was slanted for me to win, of course. And, uh, and they finally figured out what I was doing, and, and they could beat me. But anyway, uh, we ran together. But I remember the, the, the last run I think I ran in was a... a, a about a 6K run, I think, and um, I was training, and I was probably in the best shape I was in my life at that point, and I thought I was blazing fast because I was running a six-minute mile, and that was like beyond the speed of light for me. <laughs> and so anyway, I, I, I had visions of actually winning. There was a chance. I could win this thing. And so I, the gun went off, and we started, and about a mile into it, I noticed <clears throat> a shadow coming up beside me, and this lady was pushing one of those carts where you have the baby in it, you know, and the bicycle wheels. And she was passing me, you know, and she's pushing a baby. And that just took my wind away right there. And I thought, good gracious. And then pretty soon, an old man who had to be at least 80 years old passed me. And he wasn't even breathing hard. At that point, my goal was just to finish. <laughs> because I could see there was no chance that I was going to win. But when I got there, there was no place for me to say, I think this is the course we should run. I think this is the direction we should, we should take. 
There was no place on the place for you to sign up to amend that course and take a shortcut where I could arrive at the finish line before everyone else. I had to run the race that they had set. There were rules to obey, and I had to obey them, and I had to follow that course or I would be disqualified. Some of you young people won't remember this, but you older folks will. Back in 1980, there was a woman by the name of Rosie Ruiz, whose name shall forever be enshrined in the Sports Hall of Shame. And that's because she was competing in the Boston Marathon, and she started off like they do with thousands of people, and, you know, the gun goes off, and it's just a mass of humanity moving together, trying to break free of each other, and all these people lined up on the side, and she ran about a mile, and then she just quietly slipped into the crowd on the side of the road and disappeared. No one even saw her. She hailed a cab. She took that cab almost to the finish line, found a hiding spot, and laid low for a while until the runners were almost to catch up with her. Then she jumped back in the race, she sprinted toward the finish line, and she won for the category of women. And she shattered the record, by the way. Well, they, you know, put a laurel wreath upon her head, they put her up on the platform to, uh, you know, recognize her, and uh, she received all the accolades and all the, you know, the praise of everyone, <clears throat> only to have that stripped from her after they discovered that she had cheated. She couldn't take a different course. She couldn't finish in that manner. She was disqualified. And folks, we don't get to either. We have to run the course that is set before us in the way that we're told to run it. I know <clears throat> some of you might be a little uncomfortable with God being sovereign over the course of our life that we have to run. With God making decisions for us and moving us in directions that maybe we wouldn't have chosen to go. But I would just like to suggest to you today that virtually everyone here believes that God is sovereign over your life, and you're okay with that. You just don't know it yet. And let me show you why I say that. I want to read for you just a portion that comes from a little booklet written by Lorraine Bettner, and this is from his booklet called The Reformed Faith. And he says this. Listen carefully. He says, Any system that teaches that the serious intentions of God, excuse me, that's the second half. Let me read the beginning. He says, I've jumped to the end there. (laughs) He says, every thinking person readily sees that some sovereignty rules his life. He was not asked whether or not he would have existence, when or what or where he would be born, whether in the 20th century or before the flood, whether male or female, whether white or black, whether the United States or China or Africa, all those things were sovereignly decided for him before he ever had existence. It has been recognized by Christians in all ages that God is the creator and the ruler of this world and that as such, he is the ultimate source of all power that is found in this world. Hence, nothing can come to pass apart from his sovereign will. Otherwise, He would not truly be God. And then he closes with these words. He says, any system, he's talking about theological systems, which teaches that the serious intentions of God can, in some cases, be defeated, and that man who is not only a creature, but a sinful creature, can exercise veto power over the plans of Almighty God, is in striking contrast to the biblical idea of his immeasurable exaltation, by which he is removed from all the weaknesses of humanity. That the plans of men are not always executed is due to a lack of power or a lack of wisdom or both. 
But since God is unlimited in these and in all other resources, no unforeseen emergencies can arise. To him the cause for change have no existence. To assume that his plans fails and that he strives to no effect to reduce him is to reduce him to a level of his creatures and make him no God at all. I think it was Corey Tenboom who said, there are no uh-ohs in heaven. <laughs> think about that. The angels never gather around the throne of God and say, uh, you'll never believe what that knucklehead Elwell's done. You won't believe he's messed it all up. We're going to have to fall back on plan B now. God always accomplishes plan A. There is no plan B. There's just the will of God, and that's it. And because he's all-powerful, because he's all-knowing, because he lacks in nothing, nothing ever surprises him, nothing ever takes him, you know, uh, without notice, he, he is always accomplishing that which he has ordained to accomplish in each of our lives. We may not know that, we may not recognize that, and we may struggle to understand that, but our, our perspective is to trust him and to know that God is good and that he is working all things for his purpose to come to fruition in our life. When I was a young boy, <clears throat> my, I grew up in California, and my grandparents lived on, on my dad's side in Half Moon Bay. Uh, they uh, were right there on the coast, just south of San Francisco. The fog comes in. It was such a dreary place. It was like living in London or something. And the salt air, it rusts everything. You know about that here, right? And, uh, but anyway, it was, it was just damp and, and, and dreary. But uh, my grandfather was a bricklayer, and so he had built a nice house. He built a, a fireplace. And so we'd be there at Grandpa and Grandma's, and he'd have a fire going. We'd be playing board games on the living room floor. And uh, my grandmother would do something called embroidery. You know about that? Okay, and, uh, and women from that era, I don't know why it is, they were always making something called tea towels. And that's what you dry dishes with, right? And so <laughs> she would have this hoop, and it would snap a piece of cloth in it, and uh, I'd be sitting on the floor, and I'd be looking up underneath that thing, and she'd be doing like this, and I'd, I'd just be watching. And I'd look underneath it, and it was just a conglomeration of different colors and threads, made no sense at all. And I'd say, what is she doing? That looks terrible. And then I got up off the floor, and I looked down from her perspective, and I could see there was a pattern drawn in it, and she was following that pattern, and she was making a beautiful flower. I kind of think that's what's going to happen when we get to heaven one day. We're going to look down from God's perspective. We're going to see, you know what? I didn't understand it at the time when that loved one died. But God did. And he had a purpose. And he was working his purpose in my life. And so our responsibility is to trust him. Trust him by faith and know that he works all things together for good. By the way, that's a promise God can't fulfill if he's not sovereign. How can he make all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose if he's not in charge and he's not in control? You strip him of his ability to fulfill his promises. So God has a course that he has laid out for us and we're to run that course. Second thing I want you to see in this, under this first point is that Christ is the architect and the author of this race of faith. Notice verse 2. It says, <clears throat> fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that is set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand 
of the throne of God. Now, <clears throat> this will be old territory for some of you. Um, let me just touch on a couple of things and, and, and point a few things out if I could and not belabor this. But uh, I want you to look at this phrase, fixing our eyes upon Jesus. Or some of your Bibles say, looking unto Jesus. Literally, it reads in the Greek text, to look away to Jesus. And it implies looking away from something and unto our Savior. What we're to look away from is ourselves and our own abilities and trusting in that and in the allurements of the world and anything that captures your heart, captures your energies, your resources, and there's so many things in this life that do that. I think the great sin of most Christians today is not their involvement in the things of the world, but the fact that they're just so busy. They have no time for God. We give ourselves to so many things. We're going so many places. There's nothing left. We're exhausted of our resources, our time, our energies. And he says we're to look away from the things that entangle us. It's not that it's so horribly sinful, but it's so consuming that we have nothing left to give God. And he says, don't become entangled. Run the race. And then this, this phrase here, we're to look away from, and here's what to look to, the author and perfecter of faith. The word author there comes from a Greek word, interesting word, the word archigos. And it means pioneer, originator, or leader. In the first century, it was a name given to the strongest swimmer on a ship. Interesting story. If, 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 if you had a ship that was caught in a, uh, in a storm and they could not make it safely to port and couldn't even make it to the shore because they'd be dashed on the rocks <clears throat> and destroy the ship and people would die. So they take a rope and they tie it around this guy they call the Archigos, the strongest swimmer. He'd dive into the waters and swim through the turbulent waters, make it to shore. He'd tie that rope to a tree or a rock and then everyone else could come along on that rope behind him and be safe and make it to land. That's the picture of our Redeemer, folks. That's what Jesus did for us. He passed through death. He conquered death through the waters of death and made a way for us back to God who were estranged and separated from him. He is the perfecter. He is the author of our faith. Then notice thirdly, or secondly rather, as we move on, he talks about there being a great cloud of witnesses. Look at that, verse 1 again, just the opening. He says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside these things, let us run the race. I want to look at this phrase by phrase, if I could. And first, we need an explanation. Who are these witnesses who surround us? Well, remember, <clears throat> whenever the Romans built their stadiums, their coliseums, we might call them. They, they always built them in the shape of a bowl or a circle, if you will, with the playing field in the middle. Uh, that's, how they, that's how they built it. And so <clears throat> it was, you know, for the spectators to be completely able to see everything. And uh, we have much of the same thing today when you look at a football arena or even a hockey arena or whatever. It's designed where everybody from all angles can see everything. And so that, that's the picture he draws for us, is this great cloud of witnesses. And, uh, and then he goes on to say these witnesses are like a great cloud. 
And honestly, that has been a phrase that has somewhat mystified me and why he would use that. Why does he say they're a cloud? Well, did you know that this is not the normal Greek word, nephile, meaning a singular cloud, but the word nephos, meaning a great mass of clouds, like a storm front, a huge storm front rolling in. And this is the only time, in fact, you find it anywhere in the Greek New Testament. But it was often used in the Roman literature of the first century. And it was used particularly to describe the great arena in the ancient world there in Rome, called the Colosseum, you recall. One early writer, he made this statement. He said, this kind of became a catchphrase from that day. He said, when you stand on the playing field and you look around and you look at all the spectators who have come in their white robes and togas, it appears as the crowd goes up tier after tier after tier, as if a great cloud is rising up from the ground into the heavens. So that's the picture he draws for us here. So why is he talking about it in this way? And, 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 and what does he mean here by these countless thousands of people, perhaps? That's the analogy, this cloud of witnesses. But I want you to notice further that he talks about this about it uh, as, not as them being spectators but as being witnesses and the word witnesses here is the Greek word maturion we get our word martyr from that martyr this was in fact a technical legal term of the first century in Koine Greek that referred not to someone who was watching and observing something you know witness but rather someone who was was testifying, given testimony of what had happened, and particularly in their lives. In other words, this was an expert witness who gave testimony of his own experience. So let me encourage you to take all those sermons that you've heard where they tell about the great company of people looking down from heaven and watching us do whatever we're doing, and they're captivated to see how we're going to make it or whether we're going to fail or not. No, it doesn't happen. That's not the way this works. You can, you know, just put that aside. In fact, we've all heard stories about, you know, the, the young man who um, had a father who was blind and uh, he was uh, uh, dying and he died on a Friday and the young man played football for his high school and he was going to play on Saturday and, and so his father died the day before and, and he usually sat on the bench. He wasn't a very good player. The coach put him in anyway because of what had happened with his father. And so he just got out there and he prayed like, played like they'd never seen him play before. He made tackle after tackle and touched it after touchdown. It was just incredible. And uh, after the game was over and they'd won, the coach took him aside. He said, what got into you? I've never seen you play like that before. And the young man says, well, you know, my father died yesterday and this is the first time he's seen me play. That makes a good story, makes us feel warm and fuzzy and a tear may form in the corner of our eye, but it's not what happens. That's not the way it works. You can file that under N for nonsense because people in heaven have better things to do than to watch us on earth. Uh, they're not up there playing golf with the Apostle Paul. They're not fishing with the Apostle Peter. They're not getting carpentry tips from Jesus. They are in the very presence of the Lord of glory whose radiance outshines the sun. They're not spectators who watch and observe these are witnesses in this passage who testify. They are, in fact, all of the people who are listed in Hebrews chapter 11. We sometimes call that face hall of fame. 
And that's why Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 begins with these words. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses. He's listed all these people from Hebrews chapter 1 through all the chapter. And then he begins chapter 1 pointing back to them and says, Therefore, since we have all these witnesses, let us run the race. In fact, let me give you just an example of one of them. Turn back, if you would, to Hebrews 11 and chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 4. It says, By faith, Abel offered up to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, what's the next words? He still, not watches, he speaks. He speaks. He's testifying as a witness that the life of faith is worth it. So run that race. So these people who run this race, who have faced everything from the devil and what he can throw at you, to the allurements of the world, to the troubles that we face, to our own flesh that troubles this itself. And he says they've run that race by faith. They've finished the course. They're at the end of their lives and they've passed the baton on to the next generation. And they can say like Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Run the race. The race of faith. And then thirdly, notice he says in verse 4, you have not yet resisted unto the shedding of blood. Let me read that for you. He said, Do not, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Now, <clears throat> what, what is this referring to? Well, he's talking about people who are in this race and they're complaining, perhaps. They're struggling. They've got leg cramps. Sore muscles. Maybe, you know, they've got a side split. What do you call that? I can remember. And you, you know, it hurts. You want to quit. Maybe they're just dehydrated. And they want to throw in the towel. They want to, they want to toss it in. They want to give up and just go to the side and lay down. And he says... In kind of a chiding way, he says, hold on just a minute. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Of the shedding of blood in your striving in this regard. You've not yet begun to test the limits of your endurance. Remind them of that long list of people back in Hebrews chapter 11. You know what the problem is sometimes? Sometimes we give up too soon. And we never find out how far we could have gone, how far we could have run. Sometimes when you begin to, to get that, that ache in your side, you just keep running and just push it on through. And you find out that you were able to go a whole lot farther than you thought you could. There was a period in history, a 400-year period, that falls between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between Malachi and Matthew. We call them the silent years because... There was no revelation from God given during that time. But I think sometimes they're silent because we just haven't taken the time to study uh, what was written. And there are some good writings, and you can 
receive them as, as a, a, a testimony of history, maybe, uh, not, as, not as inspired. They're not in our Bibles. Uh, the books we call the Apocrypha, they are in uh, Roman Catholic Bible, and they, they feel they're inspired, but uh, most evangelicals do not. But there is some good history there. And if you read them, you'll find uh, some things that will inspire you uh, to live and run for God. In fact, <clears throat> there are many people who feel that the people who are listed there uh, became martyrs uh, of faith during that 400-year period. Uh, and, uh, and that's the people who are, are being referred to here in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, there are many Bible scholars and Bible historians who feel that that's what uh, he's talking about in uh, some of these verses here. Now, in fact, verses 36 through 38. Now, there was a time, in fact, in 168 B.C., 168 years before Christ was born in Bethlehem's manger, when a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a Syrian governor, decided that he would suspend his march to uh, Egypt and go and uh, take care of Jerusalem. And so stopping off into Israel, he sacked the city of Jerusalem. He killed 80,000 people. And those who survived, uh, he sold 10,000 of them into slavery. He then stole everything he could out of the temple. He sacrificed and offered pigs on the altar to sacrifice it. And then he turned the chambers of the temple into brothels. And he determined that he was going to eradicate Judaism from the face of this earth. And so he passed a decree. It said that anyone who was caught with a copy of the uh, Old Testament scriptures, anyone who was caught with the, the scrolls and teachings of the prophets, and anyone who had their children circumcised according to the covenant of God uh, for the Old Testament Jews, that they would be put to death. Now, there are many Bible scholars, as I said, who believe that this is referred to here in, uh, in verse 36 through 38 of Hebrews 11. Uh, we've often attributed that to the suffering that Isaiah suffered, where it talks about someone being put in a log and cut in half, uh, and it may include that. But you will find the events of Antiochus Epiphanes recorded in the book of Second Maccabees, uh, chapter 6, verse 18, through chapter 7, verse 36. And some may wonder why these Jews would have suffered and died for an old covenant that would soon be replaced in the next century. Well, remember, God has always had a faithful remnant all throughout history. And if these people were believers in the Messiah to come, then they would be believers in the same way that Abraham and Moses and the prophets of the Old Testament were believers. They were believers nonetheless. Historians tell us that there are many uh, mothers who chose to violate the king's, this pagan king's law and circumcise their sons anyway. And in response to that, uh, any newborn child that was found to be circumcised that child was killed, his throat was slit, and then his dead body would be tied to rope and hung around the neck of that mother, and she was required to wear it until it rotted off. What kind of love would move a mother to love God's law and God's covenant to the point where she would go ahead and disobey this order of this pagan king and have her child circumcised, and then trust God and, and end up uh, losing that child and be forced to wear it around her neck like that. How, what would move someone to do that? And why would they do it? The writer of Hebrews writes back and says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. The Nicene Creed, 
was written in 325 to 326. Constantine had called that council together because of a heresy in the church that challenged the deity of Christ. And that council sought to solidify the biblical teaching that Christ was God. Many were teaching he was just a man and that a man could never be God. There were some 200 plus men who gathered for that conference to hammer out that, uh, that creed. And the great leaders of the church were there. Uh, I have in my library, in fact, at home, a book <clears throat> entitled Ecclesiastical History, written by an early church father called Eusebius. And <clears throat> he writes as a first-hand witness of this. He said that there at that council, uh, the, out of 200 men that were present, only two, two of them were not without marks on their body because of persecution or torture. He writes that literally everyone was missing an arm or a hand was cut off, an eye was gouged out. They'd been burned, scarred, tortured, and disfigured because they would not deny their Savior and their Lord, nor the faith they embraced. The writer of Hebrews says again, you have not yet resisted to the point of the shedding of blood. I think about that and I think about what we struggle with. We support some missionaries in Myanmar, used to be Burma. They're literally under siege 24 hours a day. They have little orphanages and they have to move them around because they're searching for them to murder those children and murder those missionaries. It is a horrendous situation. And we struggle when the AC breaks down. <laughs> That's suffering for us. That's pretty sad. Now think about these people. They resisted to the point of the shedding of blood. They were faithful and they ran the race that God gave them to run. Well, finally today, we see <clears throat> one more thing, and that is we do not yet know what we're capable of doing until we decide to not give up. Look at verse 3 again, if you would, and we see an example here that has been given to us. He says in verse 3, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You ever decided you were going to get back in shape again? You're out of shape. And uh, so you show up to high school where the quarter mile track is. And you start that first day. And all you can do is make one lap walking around. Then you collapse by the side and say, I'm done. <laughs> that's, that's as far as you can go. So you come back the next day and you run, or walk rather, a little bit further. Then a little bit further, a little bit further. And finally you're able to run a bit. You run a lap. Then you walk a lap. Then you run, eventually, maybe a whole mile. And then two. And then three. You will never know what you're capable of doing until you refuse to give up. Refuse to throw in the towel. And you instead keep your eyes fixed upon the author and the perfecter, the finisher of our faith, our Archigos, who swam through the turbulent waters of life, enduring, verse 3 says, such hostility of sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. When is the race over? When is it done? It's not done, folks, until we're done, until we die. And you go to be with our Lord in heaven. Until then, you say with Paul, I have fought a good fight. 
I've finished the course, I've kept the faith, and we keep on going. There is no plan in the Christian faith for retirement. No such thing. You may retire from your secular job, that's good. But you don't get to retire from God. You don't get to buy a spiritual Winnebago and hit the road and leave God behind. That doesn't happen. Okay? We keep going. As I said in the earlier service, you're not my flock. You're the elders' flock of this church. My son and the other elders. But we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I want to encourage you as a child of God, as a believer in Christ, to run this race. We've been given a heritage, a significant heritage of faith. It is a heritage of profound significance, and it is a faith of our fathers and our mothers that has been handed to us, and we have a responsibility to hand it to our children as well. The question always remains for each generation, will we carry that baton of faith on to our children? And will we pass it on to them well? May you, by God's abundant grace, run steady, finish strong, and pass that baton well. Father, we thank you for this time together in your word. It's been brief. Pray, Father, that you would encourage our hearts that we may be challenged to stand up and not be lazy and not be lackadaisical and not take for granted this tremendous heritage of faith that you've given us. There are men and women who have bled and died and gave their lives that we might have this book to know your wisdom and know your truth. That we might worship in this place in freedom without the threat of danger. And we just have gotten so used to that we take it for granted. I pray, Father, you would challenge our hearts to be men and women of faith, to be families of faith, to be a church of faith, and to carry that baton until we're done. Help us, Father, to be such a people, we pray in 